morning Grace Life. We are happy that you have chosen to come here to worship with us or to tune in online and, and be with us this morning as we uh, worship God and as we open up his word and uh, hear the words from our pastor. I'd like to read to you this morning from Matthew chapter 6 beginning in verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we say to you this morning... To all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come, Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers welcome. Father God, as we gather together this morning in your name, we pray that uh, your presence would be felt in the singing, in the worship, in the words that we hear from our pastor, Lord. Uh, bless this church. I pray for the other churches in the community, Lord, that you would remember them, that, that uh, your word would be going out faithfully there as well. 
that you may grow your kingdom, Lord, through whatever means that you choose. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. You guys want to stand worship with us this morning?
going to have to excuse myself for a minute, guys. We were worshiping during rehearsal. I'm way out of tune. We uh, broke a couple strings. It's a little bit off. We're good now. All right. Amen. Thank you for the grace, guys. We appreciate you. I love you all. And God is good. Amen. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where the streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Father God, we just praise you this morning. 
Father, and just allowing us into your presence, Father. I just praise you for our brothers and sisters who are able to come here and worship with us, Father, and those that are at home. Father, we just want to give you all the glory and honor and praise for everything going on in our lives, Father God, and the good and the bad. Father, we just love you. We just praise you for all things, Father.
cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet deserve that, amen.
I sometimes, I don't know why. <laughs> that you send your son to bear the burden of my sin. But I'm so grateful. This is for your love and your unfailing love, Father, and your unfailing forgiveness. We just love you this morning, Father. I just praise you for my brothers and sisters for leading me in worship this morning, Father God. Father, we just thank you for your presence and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, man. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. You're reading verses 1 and 2 today. I'm glad to be here today, are you? Yeah. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Good morning, Grace Life Church. It is great to be with you today. This is the uh, final message in a series that we have been doing called Culture Check. And I'm really excited to, to wrap this We'll use the life of our church. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump right in. And uh, you know, normally I'll pick one passage and preach through that passage, such as the passage that Diane read, Ephesians 5. Um, but this is kind of a wrap-up. We're going to go back through and just briefly hit on each of the points that we've been making the last eight or nine weeks. And so really that passage that she read is just a summary passage. All the things about culture can be summarized in that one command, walk in love. So pause with me, let's pray, and we'll dig in together. Lord, help us to all just pause and stop for just a minute and rest and just reflect on why we're here, why we're gathered together, why do we do this every week? There's so many other things that are vying and competing for our attention, and yet we all get up, we get our families ready if we have children or a spouse. If not, we get ourselves ready. When it's one of the only days of the week we can sleep in and, and, and we come here. Why do we do that? Lord, remind us today. We gather to exalt the risen Lord, to grow together, to have our vision, to get clarified for us, to remember the urgency of our mission, and to leave here changed and transformed and united with clarity. It's like the psalmist said in Psalm 73, Life was too painful for me until I went into your sanctuary, and then I understood. Lord, may, may the true measure and the test of, of whether what we're doing today has profited us, may it be if we are leaving here with an understanding and with clarity, not with a feeling. That's good, too, but with truth that drives that feeling. May we all leave here with just a greater understanding of who you are, who we are in light of that, and what our mission is. May you change us and may you give 
me wisdom and just presence of mind, so much information that can be shared on a Sunday morning like this, and I don't want it to be an overload. Thank you for the faithfulness of your people and those at home who are watching. We welcome them, and we're thankful that they can join us live. We're thankful for the technology. I pray they don't feel isolated or um, distinct from us. They feel like in, in a very real sense they are with us, united with us right now, worshiping you, growing together. And I pray for our nation. I pray for our, for our country, for our leaders, for the mayors and, and uh, everyone that's making decisions. As Some states are ready to open, like Florida, to phase three, and other states are very cautious and concerned, and that creates a lot of tension and disagreement and potential conflict and civil unrest and outrage and rancor and a lot of ugly things, Lord, that are just tearing our nation apart, it seems like. So heal us, Lord. Our nation doesn't need anything right now but God. <laughs> and may we seek you together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the final message on Culture Check, and I've tried carefully and clearly to define what culture is. Culture, one of the best definitions I've ever heard is culture is the way we do things around here. The unspoken rules, the unspoken rules about the way we do things around here. In other words, you're not going to find culture on a doctrinal statement, even though it flows out of that. You're not going to find culture, you know, framed and put on a wall, even though that wouldn't be a bad idea to do that with these seven, eight messages we've preached. Culture is unspoken. It's, it's assumed. It's unquestioned. It's unchallenged. And everybody has a culture. Companies, big companies, CEO-type companies have a culture. Google has a culture. Amazon has a culture. Small businesses have a culture. Families have a culture. Sometimes cities have a culture. You've heard of L.A. as the city that never sleeps. So that city's culture is like restlessness, driven New York is the Big Apple. That's like the power culture where people go to get power and acclaim. Families have a culture and churches have a culture. And sometimes the very people in those cultures are the very last ones to realize that it's broken bad. It's gone toxic. It's tanked. It's gone south. They can't see it. They can't feel it. They don't know it. And so that's why we launched this series, not because we're concerned that our culture is toxic, but because we want to make sure that it's not. We want it to be healthy. We, we don't want to assume anything. We want to question everything in a healthy sense. So culture, the church culture, is the unspoken rules about the way we do things around here. It's like fish to a water. It's like the house smell that everyone else can smell but you. It's the vibe, the energy that a church has or doesn't have. It's either good or bad. Healthy or, or toxic and so this is the, the, the final message. And I want to say this. The, and by the way, the, one of the books that's been the most helpful, and I'm holding it up this way. So those of you that are thin book, very unintimidating, very easy to read. And I trust the author, great man of God that's helped me tremendously. His name is Ray Ortland. And the, uh, the title of this book is The Gospel. And the subtitle says it all, How the Church portrays the beauty of Christ. In other words, we got this doctrine up here on paper and on our website that we want the world to believe. How are we going to show them what that doctrine does, how it changes us? Well, that's the church. 
The church is the display of the authenticity of our message. When you've got solid gospel doctrine on paper and you've got human relationships that are beautiful in practice, you've got a powerful church. You've got a powerful culture. So that's what this book is about. And at the very beginning of the series, we offer this free to every individual and family unit here. Just one copy. We don't want to go crazy. And some of you are newer since we started this. So if you did not get a copy of this book, see Diane. Raise your hand, Diane. See Diane and she'll make sure that, that we either get you one or we'll order more. That's our gift to you and it will benefit you because it's about the Bible. It's about the gospel. It's about Christ. So, so you can have a solid doctrine and yet your culture can be very toxic. I heard this at a conference that I went to early when we planted this church. A man said this and I didn't understand until years later what he meant. He said, you can have solid theology. You can have robust sound gospel doctrine, you can have a dazzling philosophy of ministry, and your culture can eat you for lunch. <laughs> In other words, this is what we believe. This is what we teach. Yay! Hooray! It's all great. It's all biblical. And yet, the relationships in your church are very sour and rancor, and there's conflict that just follows everybody. There's a, a terrible smell. There's rot. There's mildew. There's mold. What happened? We had good theology up here. It just never made its way to our heart and expressed itself in a beautiful way that was head-turningly beautiful. That's what the church is supposed to be, attractive in the right way. In other words, the world out there is suspicious already. They're like, yeah, you Christians, crazy Christians, you believe all your crazy doctrine. But when they lean in and they listen up, they should see something unique and powerful and attractive that defies everything that they thought they knew about the church. That was the early church. That was the first century church. People were in awe. They were dazzled by what they saw and heard because they said they love each other. How do they do that? How do all these people who had different diverse cultural backgrounds and even religious backgrounds and political backgrounds came out of that and they united under Christ and they love each other? That's what everybody wants, but only the church has it because we have the only power that secures it. So that's what this series has been about. There's a lot of different ways that the church is illustrated in the Bible. There's analogies and metaphors. And one of my favorites, uh, well, here's a few of them. Uh, the church is a building with many stones or blocks or bricks, right? You're the bricks. Jesus is the cornerstone. And this building we call the church. Or we're a flock of sheep and Jesus is the chief shepherd. And we're his sheep. Here's another one. Uh, we're a family, and Jesus is the head, and we're all many members. So I want to take that analogy for a minute and launch this message with, with this. If you, if you read any books about dysfunctional families or go on a website and, and say, what are the signs of a dysfunctional family? I've narrowed it down for you. Uh, there are eight signs of a dysfunctional family. Eight signs. And look, I know every family has some level of dysfunction because we live in a fallen world where sin exists, right? And sin, there's always a victim. There's no such thing as a victimless sin. Somebody always suffers when we sin. So here are eight signs of a dysfunctional family. One, lack of communication, like a breakdown. Two, lack of empathy. There's no understanding, no compassion. Three, negligence. There's no support, emotional support, physical support, financial support. 
Four, criticism. Just crushing criticism. Critical all the time. Nitpicking and just tearing everyone to pieces. Five, control. You're controlled, you're watched, you're monitored, you're regulated in a crushing way. Number six, crushing expectations that can never be met. Number seven, lack of trust. Nobody trusts anybody else, so there's no privacy, there's no independence, a healthy, the healthy kind. And then uh, eighth is the presence of violence and abuse and harm and danger. So those are eight signs, and if you notice something about those, every single one of those are relational problems. The relational problem is how members in the family treat one another. It's toxic, it's harmful, it's dangerous, it's unhealthy, it's bad. And if the church is a family, a church can be dysfunctional too. It can be toxic, it can be unhealthy, it can be dangerous. Even though it has great theology on its website, Westminster Confession, you know, 1689, Baptist Confession of Faith, all of that stuff is in place. Virgin birth, veracity of Scripture, deity of Christ, all those things are there. But yet there's relational upheaval. So, what I thought we would do uh, for this last summarizing sermon is to answer a question. How can we know if the culture of our church is healthy? What are the signs of a healthy church culture? Now look, and I know we could go all year with this, and I could spend two hours talking about it. But I wanted to narrow it down to the things that we've talked about, and I think the things that stand out for, for what God is seeking to accomplish in this church. You know, the saddest reality about dysfunctional families, to me, is if you, and I have, talked to the people that are in those families, and that's all they've ever known. If you ask them, hey, what's a family? What's a home? And they'll say, well, it's a place of pressure. It's a place where I feel harassed. I don't, I don't feel trust. I don't feel love, support. I can't leave. I just feel stuck. And here's the sad thing. That's all they've ever known. So to them, that's family. You say family, they cringe. And there's people I meet all the time, and you say church, they cringe. Because <laughs> they've been in such an unhealthy and a toxic church culture, and it's all they've ever known that's come to represent normal for them. They don't know any different. The only church experience they've ever had has been one that was unhealthy. For the, the gospel doctrine, if that was good, if that was sound at least, the good theology never made its way, wove its way into relationships and beautified them. So it's all they've ever known is there's just been pressure and they've been harassed. There's never been relief. It's always been a watch your back because nobody else has got it. The home is not an oasis, it's not a happy place, it's not a refuge or rest, it's not a place of joy, it's not life-giving, it's life-taking. So let's answer that question about dysfunction and, and, and health with, with the church. Francis Schaeffer said, nothing is more ugly than orthodoxy, and that's good theology. Orthodoxy, what you believe without compassion. Nothing is more ugly than orthodoxy without compassion. In other words, I've said it this way before. Um, I'm a conservative Christian and I'm angry about it, <laughs> right? Or I'm a Baptist and I'm angry about it. Or I'm a fundamentalist and I'm angry about it. It's like, why are you angry about it? Be happy about it. There's nothing uglier than orthodoxy without compassion or with a clenched fist and a scowl. And there's nothing more beautiful than human love and action. That's what Ephesians 5 said. If you could summarize all of this, 
What's God want for his church? He wants us to walk in love. Well, what's that look like? And how are we empowered to do that? As Christ has loved you. That's doctrine that translates into culture. So here's the way we're going to answer the question. A healthy church. How do you know you're part of a healthy church culture? How can Grace Life know that? This is a dangerous sermon to preach because I'm inviting accountability. Both for the leadership of this church and for me as the lead pastor. And for all of our ambassadors and servants. There's seven tests and we've done seven sermons on it. Here they are. A healthy church welcomes one another. It's not exclusive. It walks in the light. It's not secret. It wars for the gospel. It's not hypocritical. It seeks God together. It's not a fragile, alarmist, panicking type of church. We're always seeking God. No matter how bad it gets out there or in here, we're seeking God first and earnestly. We're sending servants. We're not hoarding them. We're not stingy. We're radically generous because God sent his best. We send our best. That means we plant churches. We send help where people need it. We serve others. That means we're not serving's not beneath us. We stoop. We condescend because Jesus did. He's the ruler who came to serve ultimately and gave his life a ransom. And we Sabbath regularly. We're rested. We are ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our life because we know it will sabotage our spiritual vitality. We're not in a rush. We're not hurried. We're trying to eliminate program-heavy stuff in the church and live a simple life so that we can worship Jesus. So that's the, uh, that's the outline. What does a healthy church culture do? That's the question that we're trying to answer. Am I making sense so far? I hope so. Thank you, both of you. <laughs> so here we go. I'm going to go through this rather quickly, okay? And if you've missed any of these messages or missed the whole thing, this is the perfect Sunday for you to come because we're going to wrap it up and summarize it. I want to direct you to our website in a way I hope this does not sound self-serving because, well, I don't, I don't even know the depths of my own depravity, so maybe I am serving myself here. But I write a blog every single week, um, my sermon notes are about, let's see, 10, 10, uh, 10 pages divided up into half sheets. And every week I take those, those notes and I practice concision and I write a blog article as, as short as I can. And I post it on our website um, just for people to, that maybe weren't able to come here, just a more concise way of understanding what we're after. And all seven messages, all eight messages are on our website on the blog section. Megan posts those for us every week. So I'm summarizing today, and you can go to our website and get more help. If any of these you want to dig a little bit deeper, if this is just whetting your appetite, and that's all I'm, I'm aiming to do, really. So here's point number one. A healthy church culture welcomes one another. Welcomes one another. And that's in contrast to a world of exclusion and barriers and cliques. It's ruthless. The one thing that most people do not feel in the world is welcome. They feel like, I don't belong here. There's no place for me here. The church ought to be the one place on the planet where people feel like they finally belong. Like they are welcome with open arms. And our text for that is Romans 15. And we're going to read through a few scriptures today. And that's great because this is 
the church, and we believe the Bible. That's our ultimate source of authority. So Romans 15 says, this is Paul after writing chapters full of rich gospel doctrine and theology. This is kind of how he summarizes it. Check this out. This is like the whole Bible in just one little passage. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ that together, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Did you catch that? Welcome one another. This is not like a light, like just pat it back and five and say, how you doing? Great to have you here. No, the Greek word receive is as a preposition on the front of it. It's like super welcome, abundant welcome. You don't hold your, you don't tolerate one another. You like super receive one another. Pros or kato lambano one another. Super. How? When's the last time you have felt so welcome when somebody hosted you? You walked into that house and you felt like, man, I belong. They want me here. They're happy that I'm here. That's somebody with the gift of hospitality makes you feel that way. And the church, overwhelmingly, that ought to be our culture. No matter what it is you came from. What sins you've buried in your closet. And we'll get to that in a minute with walk in the light. You feel welcomed here. Now, how is that possible? Well, it says, as Christ has welcomed you. See, that's gospel doctrine. As Christ has welcomed you, how has he welcomed you? Was the jury not out yet on whether or not you were in? I mean, the Bible goes out of its way. He says, when you were weak, Jesus died for you. When you were a sinner, Jesus died for you. When you were without hope, Jesus died for you. How many other ways could the Bible say it? Jesus died for you when you were unworthy to be died for. He welcomed you when nobody else would be welcomed. Therefore, welcome one another. We got the example and we got the power. Welcome one another. That's intense. And when you see it, it's powerful. When you know what you deserve, it's super abundant welcome. That's powerful. I was driving to my office one morning early. And you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. And I don't know why, in my mind, when I see something, it's like taking, what's that, what's that function on your phone? It's called live photos. When it goes, takes a million, and then when you're trying to delete your pictures, you're like, what happened? It took a million little pictures? I do that in my mind sometimes when I see something going down, and I saw a wreck right by my office. And even though I saw that picture, it told a whole story. Teenager, just got their driver's license, texting somebody probably, rear-ended a really nice car, totaled it probably, and they're like in a puddle of tears, and the dad just showed up when I got there. Nobody had to tell me any of that. I saw it all. I saw all of that. I saw the, I saw the expression on the kid's face of, I'm a failure. I can't believe I did this. Dad, I'm so sorry. And I saw, I just happened to drive right through when that dad was walking up, and I'll probably cry in a minute talking about it. When that dad was walking up on the scene, and I could tell what that was expecting. <laughs> and then I saw what that son actually got. The dad walked up like this. Walking up. Can y'all see me? 
He was walking up like this, and the son was like, Dad, I'm sorry. All of this happened right when I was driving by so that I could tell it to you in a sermon illustration. <laughs> and the dad walked up, and he went like this. And that son, ran. it was like the prodigal son <laughs> in Luke, except he rear-ended somebody while texting, you know. He didn't go into a far country. And that dad wrapped his big, muscled-up arms around that son, and I just saw both of them shaking. That's what this passage means. Welcome one another. How? Like that. Like God welcomed you. You didn't deserve it. You were texting while driving and you were speeding, right? What you deserve is a ticket, chief, right? You deserve to be thrown in the slammer. But what you got was grace. Now, go and do likewise. And shock somebody. The gospel's scandalous. It's surprising and it's shocking. Because we don't deserve to be welcomed. And we know that. That's why we show up and we're not sure. And we're waiting we're waiting for the, for the test in this church. Am I welcome here? Yes. If this is a church culture that mimics the culture that Christ is to walk in love, yes, you're welcome here. But I, it doesn't matter. The but doesn't matter. You're welcome here. This is a safe place for you to grow and change and heal and rethink your life at a deeper level. We're your people. That's what it means to welcome one another. Christ's reception of us was profound, permanent, wholehearted, genuine, and scandalous. <laughs> like the prodigal son. And when you realize how intently, not moderately, you were loved and welcomed by God in Christ, you know what it does? It melts you. It makes you less defensive, more loving, more genuine, more authentic. It does that. Those are all the things the world values. They just can't wrap their mind and their arms around the power to be those things. We have the answer. As God has welcomed you in Christ, welcome one another. That's the example and that's the power. Two, point number two. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. Here's the passage for that. It's in 1 John Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And I will tell you the truth. This, is, this has become one of my favorite passages of all time. That has helped me set the trajectory in my life, my family, and my leadership. Because I don't feel like I've had good examples of this in my life. And that's nobody's fault, really. It's my own. I had the example here in the Bible. I just don't feel like I saw that fleshed out very well. Maybe you haven't either. Because listen, that is not the culture of the world that we live in. It is not walk in the light. You know what that means, don't you? It means be, be honest, no secrets. You're not hiding anything. You don't have anything to hide. You don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to fear. You don't have anything to lose. You're not going to get that out there. Out there, you're going to get fake it till you make it, baby. Never let them see you sweat. Don't let them know the real you because it ain't going to bode well. And that's true. It won't. But that can't be the culture in here. The culture in here is walk in the light. Walk in openness. Walk in honesty. Let's read it. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know the shock in that passage is, you would think that John would say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. That's true. He says that earlier in the book. 
and later in the book. But the point he's making here is, if you really value fellowship, which is like, that word means, it's koinonia in Greek. It means deep unity and partnership and sharing and participation with one another. If you really desire fellowship and you crave it and you want it, you've got to walk in the light with, with one another. You've got to be honest. You've got to stay honest. You've got to be open. And you know what that means? You're going to be doing a lot of confessing to one another, which is James 5. Least practiced and misunderstood and scared of your sins one to another so that you may be healed. If we're walking in the light, if you want to know the test of whether or not you're walking in the light, when's the last time you confessed another human being? When was that? Are you Because you're sinning against human beings every day, I promise you. <laughs> every day. If you're if you're single, you are. Nobody escapes. <laughs> if you got kids, you really are. Are you confessing your sins one to another? Not just your family, but your church family. When's the last time you ask another person to forgive you? When's the last time you apologized, if you want to use that word? Without defending yourself. I'm sorry, it's been a hard day. I'm sorry, late night. No, 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 no qualifications. I'm sorry. That was wrong. That was sinful. And God has something better for me and you. When's the last time you did that? If it's been a long time, guys, I want to tell you, ask God to help you walk in the light. It is a wonderful, beautiful place to be walking. There's no such thing as dirty light. Do you know that? Light is clean. It's pure. powerful. It's welcoming. It's the darkness that's dirty and that's ugly. Why would we want to walk there? That's where Satan wants you to walk, in the darkness. Just keep it close to the vest. Never let them see you sweat. Never be honest. You can't trust people. They'll hurt you. They'll exploit you, which is true. Practicing all these. It's Mike cutting out. I don't know if we can do anything about that. I'm sorry, guys. Maybe the way I'm. Here we go. Walk in the light. Stop pretending. You ever pretended? Have you ever pretended? I have. For years I pretended. How you doing? I'm fine. It's great. Crushing it. Killing it. Never been better. Marriage is amazing. Who knew it could be this wonderful? My wife respects me. My kids obey me. The people that I'm leading trust me. Crushing it. <laughs> we have finitis. I'm fine. You're fine. We're fine. They're fine. <laughs> When's the last time you told somebody the real state of your heart? You said, you know what? I'm not doing well. I'm not doing well at all. I need help. I need prayer. I have an addiction. I don't know why I drink four beers every night to, just to get to sleep. And I binge on Netflix and leave things undone that need to be neglected. I'm short-tempered with my kids. I lie about things at work. I'm working from home, but I'm not really working. I turn my camera off on the live feed. I don't whatever it is. And there's the flip side of that. How are you doing? You know what? God's helping me. I'm changing. Walk in the light. Share that. Somebody needs to hear that. That change is possible and that God works miracles. Share that story. Walk in the light. That means with somebody else that you can be honest and open with. 
That is so lacking today. I think so many people, so many human beings feel isolated and alone, which is exactly where Satan wants them to feel because they're so afraid to do what this verse says. And the reason they are is because that gospel culture has never made its way down into their heart. That you belong to God no matter what. There's nothing you've ever done that's going to make him stop loving you. And there's nothing that you can ever do that's going to make him love you does because of what Jesus Kills it, absolutely destroys it. Like Clorox bleach destroys mold. It's like you don't have to pretend anymore, man. You can be honest. And then you've got prayer support. Then you've got accountability. That's what so many people like walking in the light, stepping out into the light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together, and he said, Pious communities are not exempt from secrets. You know, I was studying this week church cultures, that the most toxic church cultures in the world, and to a, I don't know, to a fault, to a man, to, every single one of them had one common trait, secrets. Secrets were kept. Hey, 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 let's just keep this in, in the house now. Let's not talk about this with anybody. Privacy, secrecy, don't tell anybody. Don't, don't report this. Abuse, sexual abuse, scandals, all kinds of stuff. Just secrecy. Let's just keep it in house. It's terrible. I met a guy at a conference, and you would know his pastor. You would know his pastors. So like celebrity status. And he said, you know, man, this church is falling apart. Nobody knows it yet. They will. He said, and I'm leaving. And he said, they had an outside, I forget, coach or somebody, evaluator that came in. And he said he evaluated our lead pastor and all the staff and took them all individually into rooms and asked them questions about the state and culture and environment of the church. He said, and that guy came and gathered all our staff. He said, it hurts me to tell you this, but I have to if we're going to make a change. He said, this is the most unhealthy church structure I have ever seen in my life. But from the outside, it looked like they were crushing it. Big buildings, books, sermons. Millions of YouTube hits. Toxic. Toxic. And nobody knew it. Walk in the light. Uh, number three. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurry up. Don't worry. You guys are getting scared. You're like, we got seven points. We're only at number three. We go faster as we get to the end. It's like a snowball rolling. Uh, what does a healthy church culture do? It wars for the gospel. War is just... The W, you know, welcome, walk, war, fight. It fights for the gospel. It fiercely protects the message that unites us and that makes us a church. And here's a verse for this because uh, early in the church, hey, hang on a minute, hit the pause button for a second. It just came to mind. I was, I was reading, I'm reading through the book of Acts right now, and I came to, to chapter 5 in the book of Acts. This is the last point, just backing up real fast. If you want to know how important it is that we walk in the light together, one of the most shocking narratives you will ever read in the New Testament is Acts chapter 5. Because do you know what God does in the New Testament after the cross, after the resurrection? God kills two people for lying. Did you know that? I know I'll maybe dig a hole to explain this, and I'll do a sermon on that much later. Acts chapter 5, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. 
lied to the church and they lied to the Holy Spirit. See, this, this culture was, was building and it was beautiful and everyone, none of the things that they owned was, was belonged to them. They freely, it wasn't communism, nobody forced them to give things to other people. They voluntarily and willingly did it. Nobody was in need. Nobody suffered neglect. If somebody had a need and abundantly. But Acts chapter 5 says, but Ananias and Sapphira sold their property and said it was worth this much and they laid it at the apostles' feet and they did it for attention and for acclaim and for recognition. And Peter confronted the husband and the wife and he says, why have you done this? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit and to men? And they were killed. And then the wife came in a few hours later and she was killed. It's, uh, you read that and you're like, dang, what the heck? I mean, if you're honest, if you're like me, I'd still do this? If I stood up here and lied to you, would God kill me? Like I said, that for another day. Here's the point I want to make. How important is it to God that we're walking in honesty and openness with each other? Not embellishing, not exaggerating. Just wanted to back up and make that point. Next point. We're fighting for the gospel. There's, a, there's a, a story in Galatians 2. The whole book of Galatians is about protecting the message of the gospel. That we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, period. Justified means you're made acceptable. You're welcomed into the presence of God based solely upon the finished work of Jesus and not your own. That's got to be the message that sets the culture and in Galatians chapter 2, Peter's telling the story about how the gospel was, was under attack at one of the first churches in Antioch. And I want to read it to you. He says, when I saw, here let me read it from here, I can't see that. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, what was happening was Paul planted a church in the Galatian region. And then Peter came up to visit. And Peter started separating himself from the Gentiles and setting only, sitting only with the Jews and being exclusive. And Paul saw it. And he called Peter out publicly. This would have been like Clash of the Titans. One apostle confronts another apostle in front of everybody. That's how important this was. And he says, Peter, your conduct is out of step with the gospel. That Greek phrase is really powerful and electric. It means you're not lining up. You're out of step. Here's the gospel, and here's the direction your life is going. Like, here's the gospel, lines, straight lines that go out from the gospel. And sometimes our life, when we stop believing that message about justification by faith alone, it gets out of step. And Paul is calling Peter out publicly because the culture is getting toxic and exclusive, and it, it, it's just getting wrecked. And so Paul thought it was that important that he was going to fight. He was willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the closest disciple to Jesus publicly because the gospel was at stake. And I will tell you this, I am too. This, I will go to the mat 
on the message of the gospel being kept central in this church. As long as I have breath in my body, and I hope you will too, because that's what makes a church culture beautiful is the message of the, excuse me, the message of the gospel. And if you want to know, what has that got to do with anything? I want to read a quote to you from a man named Richard Lovelace. He wrote this, and this will help you understand how important and vital the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone is to you and I in our everyday life. Because listen, friends, we are always looking to be justified. Did you know that? We're always looking for somebody to tell us, you matter, you're legit, you're special, you're This is what Richard Lovelace says. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, that's justification by faith, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. Much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. In other words, what Paul was saying to Peter is, Peter... Not only do you not have the right to look down on those Gentiles because the ground's level at the cross, you don't have the need to look down on them. Jesus accepts you. God accepts you because of Christ. Not because you're eating this food or not eating this food or sitting here or not sitting there. And that's so important for us today because we're justified by faith alone, apart from our busyness, apart from our appointments, apart from our salary. Apart from the school we went to, or the job we have, or how many letters are before or after our name, or how pretty we are, or how many likes or followers or retweets we get. That's the world we live in. I don't think the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone has been more important than it is right now. That's why Martin Luther said, this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, and every single week I beat it into the heads of my people because every single week they forget. <laughs> Amen. Okay, that's point three. We're going to go quick now. Point four is how do you know if your church culture is healthy? Because it's a culture that seeks God first. And I can't think of a better point to make in an election year when all this civil unrest and social discord is going on. Everybody is at each other's throat. And now some governors, like our governor, are saying, phase three, let's reopen other states are saying, no, 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 it's not time yet. It's dangerous. And there's going to be, you just wait. You wait. I'm telling you, wait for it. <laughs> this friction, conflict everywhere, politically, socially. And people are panicking and they're reaching like DEFCON 5 emergency, the sky's falling. And what does the church do in times like that? What do we do? Do we panic? Do we just mimic? It says, okay, be be afraid now. Panic now. No, God says, seek me. I've got this. I'm on my throne. None of this surprises me. None of this shocks me. None of this is beyond me. I am orchestrating and directing history. And you belong to me. You're on my side. It's not that I'm on your side. It's that you're on my side. And you're my child and I'm your father. And you need to just seek my face. And 
everything's going to be okay. And for the passage for that, it's Psalm 63, because David's in the wilderness, and his life is a complete dumpster fire, and it's his fault. I think when I preach that message, I use the illustration of, a, of an earthquake that's, that happens underneath the surface of the ocean that's not so quiet, but hidden. There's a rumble, and then it's gone, and we're like, whew, I'm glad that's over, but then comes, comes the tsunami. That happened in Japan, remember? Offshore earthquake, 13 miles under the ocean happened, and like displaced 5,000 homes and killed people, and David, because of his sin with Bathsheba, this quiet earthquake that happened, now he's facing the fallout of that. Nathan the prophet said, the sword shall never depart from your home because of what you did. And it was true. All of David's sins that he acted out, his children took notes. There was lust, envy, jealousy, murder, conspiracy, deception. All of that happened. And now he's faced with the reality of my son is usurping my throne. And he's chasing me out of the holy city of David. And I'm in the wilderness and I'm falling apart. But what did he do? Check this out. I'm reading the subtitle because it tells you what was going on. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because of your steadfast love, or excuse me, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And David could only do that because that was the culture of his life and kingdom. You know, a culture is almost like an involuntary response. You know how many breaths all of you have taken since we've sat here this morning? No. Why? Because you didn't count them. Why? Because they're involuntary. Nobody, nobody has to tell you to breathe, do they? Hey, guys, real quick, make your heart beat so you don't die. Make it beat. I don't have to tell you that. Why? That's your... That's an organ, thank God, it's involuntary. Because <laughs> I'm distracted, I'd forget. <laughs> hey, heart. David's involuntary response to trouble in his life, you know what it was? Seek God first, seek God earnestly. Man, I want that. Because so often I make a phone call or I text, hey man, it's not asking for prayer, it's asking for a solution. Do you do that? Is your first line of defense, oh, don't worry honey, we know so and so. And that so and so is not God. Well, I got somebody that can fix this. <laughs> it's like, I know God. I'm going to talk to him about this. He'll hear me. He'll answer me. Everything's going to be fine. That's a culture. Do you know what kind of church? Let me say it the right way. If every single person in a church family had that culture privately, do you know how powerful it would be when they corporately came together? They'd been doing that all week. We're going to come together and do together what we've been doing individually all week, seeking God. We're not panicking. We're not alarmed. We're not afraid. The Bible says to them, that's a sign of destruction when you're afraid. No, we're courageous. We're joyful. We're confident. We're not afraid. Why? Because we're seeking God. He's on his throne. He loves us. Okay. Moving right along. Fifth. Serving others, serving others. John 13, shocking passage. Jesus is about to die. This is the last time he has with his disciples before he is betrayed, arrested, murdered, and then resurrected. 
And you remember the context. His disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. (laughs) Pretty crazy. How insensitive can you be? Your master is about to die, and he's been trying to tell you this, and you're arguing over who's the greatest, who's going to sit at his right and left hand. And Jesus knows they've got to be confronted. They've got to be helped. These are the 12 men on, you know, whom the, the, the launch of the church is resting in some degree. So Jesus does something radical. He stands up from his place in the upper room, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he gets a basin of water, and he begins to wash their feet, which would have been reserved for the lowest of the lowest of the lowest servant. And this is what he says when he did it. Check this out. He says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, if then I as your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Listen, if serving is beneath you, then leading is going to be beyond you. And being a Christian is going to be beyond you. Because Jesus set an example when he came and served us. Ultimately, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, 45, and to give his life a ransom for many. He served us to the extent that he died for us. He laid down his life for us so that we could serve one another. The church ought to be a culture of of serving. Nothing is beneath us. Changing diapers. I saw a picture of, of, I'm not trying to embarrass you guys. It was Bobby and Sam and Jesse last week. Have you ever seen it gush rain like it did last Sunday? Right when people were pulling in to get out of their cars. Some of them with kids. And it's like dumping rain into their vans. And into the electric windows. Which is kind of scary for me. Anyway. And these three guys are out there. Nobody asked them to, as far as I know. Nobody told them to. They're out there soaking wet. I mean like dripping water, holding umbrellas, escorting people into the church. And Jesus would have done that. I have no doubt. What Jesus did would be like the CEO of a billion-dollar company like Apple pulling up in his, what's an expensive car, like a Rolls-Royce or Benz or something, he pulls into his reserved parking spot, and there's a landscaper. No, I'm not saying anything negative about landscaping. It's a noble, just trying to illustrate something. He sees a landscaper pulling weeds, and he puts his briefcase down. He goes, oh, let me help you. In front of, like, Apple headquarters, the CEO in, like, a $5,000 pinstripe suit squats down in the grass and the mud and the mulch and starts pulling weeds. Would that shock you if you saw that? That's Christianity. I mean, Christianity, you probably wouldn't wear the $3,000. You get the point. If serving is beneath you, leadership and Christianity is beyond you. And that's going to that's gonna be important, guys, for us. We're about to open up to phase three here, which means we're going to start having coffee again, Lord willing, right? When we okay it with the school. We're going to open up our K through fifth grade. We're going to start teaching these kids the gospel again back here. And hopefully welcome some new families that haven't been able to come. But you know what? We're shorthanded. And you know the unspoken rule about the way we do things around here? We don't guilt people into serving. I'm never going to do that. I've been a part of that. And it doesn't work. The people that you guilt to serve do it resentfully. And they're not happy. 
doing it. I want to have a culture where people are so dazzled by what Jesus did for them. They're like, where can I serve? Plug me in, baby. Plug me in. What can I do? There's a war going on. I'll carry ammo. I don't care. (laughs) We need help. We need help serving. We're going to need people to help make coffee, serve coffee, teach back there with a background check. Okay? Anyway, I'll say more about that later. Just leaving it there for now. Oh, I got to hurry. Okay. Sending servants, point six. Promise. These are quick, guys. Quick points. Um, some cultures and churches are a supersize me. If you build it, they will come. We want, and look, I, I get it. That's, for some churches, that's their, that's their culture. That's their vision. And sometimes that's helpful. Buy more property, build more buildings, have more land, bring more people, gather more people, keep more people. That's not going to be the culture of this church because I believe the Bible teaches we ought to hold on to all the gifts God gave us, people being the greatest gift, with open hands because they don't belong to us. And I want to tell you this, and this is dangerous for me to say, but I'm going to say it. You do not belong to me. You do not belong to Grace Life. In a sense, you do, but in another sense, you don't. We don't own you. You don't have a Grace Life brand on your rear end. (laughs) I grew up on a farm. We branded cattle, okay? You don't have a Grace Life brand on your rear end. You are the Lord's sheep, not the cattle of Grace Life. You belong to Jesus. And some people are going to come to this church and they're going to get equipped and trained. And God's going to call them somewhere else to serve. And hopefully they will be better servants at wherever God sends them to because of their time here. We sent Patty to Ireland. We were happy to do that, and we cried because I'd love for her to still be here and keep casting vision for our children's ministry. I've never seen anybody cast vision. Diane and I talked about this for children better than Patty Parks, but Ireland needed her better, worse, better. Ireland needed her more than we did, and so we send her and we say, "Amen, go, my sister, go with God." Via con Dios, right? Is that the right Spanish? I'm getting off track here and five families to Grace Life Beachside. Why? Because Ormond by the Sea needed them more than we did. The verse for this is John 12. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and die, truly, truly, I tell you, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit. So we want to be a sending church, not a stingy church, not a hoarding church. We want to release these seeds so that oak trees, we don't want to be a bunch of acorns piled up together. We want to throw them and plant them so there's these massive oak trees, gospel oak trees all over the planet. I want to be a part of that, don't you? So I already read the verse that goes with that one. So uh, that's John 12. One more, last point. Sabbath regularly. And guys, I got to be honest with you. I got to be honest with you. See, we live in such a culture, you have to tell people you're going to tell them the truth. (laughs) Can I be honest with you? Because otherwise I'd be lying because that's the world we live in. In the light with you, no message has impacted me so far <laughs> greater than the one I preached last week. It, I'm still, it's still resonant. I'm still feeling the rumblings of what God's seeking to change in my life and in this church because of that principle of Sabbath. Because we live in such a rushed, hurried, professional culture that I think it strips people's gears and phrase them on the end and makes them neurotic and unhappy and on edge. 
ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life because it will sabotage your spiritual vitality. It will. It will. Fight against being digitally distracted with everything within you. Slow down. Live a simple life. That's what I believe the principle of Sabbath when God said, look, you got six days to work. Rest in the creation and worship. You know, one of the first things that the Bible says about working is that you should regularly stop doing it because <laughs> you're not God. <laughs> you have to curl up in a fetal position and suck your thumb for eight hours every night because you're not God. You've got to rest. You're not the Christ. And I think that's the biggest struggle for us living in 21st century America is rush, rush, hurry. I've even talked to people that have been forced to slow down because of the pandemic. And you know what they still tell me? I'm exhausted. And you got to ask yourself, why? What things am I doing that are killing me that God never asked me to do? Why am I doing them? I'm not going to do them anymore. I'm going to stop. Man, those are hard decisions to make that can change your life. And In fact, pray for us because we're going to have a meeting. Our tech crew is going to have a meeting after, after this message. And we're going to talk about, we're doing a bunch of stuff right now, digitally and technologically. And it's hard, and it makes us so busy on Sunday morning, and it can be so distracting for the people doing it. I want to roll back and be as simple, as simple as we can, and to reject professionalism. <laughs> Last thing, and we're closing. I was going to tell the tech crew this at the meeting, so here, you'll, you'll hear it here. I was, reading, uh, I, was, I was reading about a man who almost went crazy with busyness. He was a mega church pastor, and he was younger than me, and he knew his life was heading for burnout. One night after the seventh Saturday night service, wrap your head around that. I can't. Preaching seven times on a Saturday night. I'm wrecked after one service. You're like, yeah, because you preach too long. Listen, hang on. After his seventh sermon, he was on the way home, and he said, I was numb. Somebody was driving him because he was a celebrity pastor, and he said his head was against the window, and rain was pelting down on the car. He got home. It's like close to midnight. His wife's in bed. His kids are in bed. He hadn't seen them all day or all weekend. And he said, I'm drinking my second beer and I'm watching a Kung Fu Western that I can't understand. And I'm just numb. And he says, why am I doing this? And he said, he took a fourth sabbatical and he said, I almost never came back. And he said, I demoted myself, not because of a sexual scandal or a moral breach he said, I, I fired myself from being the lead pastor of my church and said, I'm not doing that anymore. It's killing me and it's killing my family. And he said, we had these metrics. We had these metrics. How do we know that our church is successful? And he said, the metrics were this. Four, the four B's. Building, butts <laughs> in the seat. You never heard the word butt from the pulpit before, did you? How many buildings do we have? How many butts are in the seat? What's our budget? How much are people giving? And what's the buzz? What's the social media thing looking like? What are people saying? Are people liking us? Are they sharing? He said, all four of those were wrecking us. He said, and here's the scary thing. I could get an email every Monday morning and tell me how our church was doing based on those metrics. How much did we receive in the tithe and offering yesterday? How many people were there? What's the property situation looking like? We buying? We selling? What are people saying on social media? He said, all those I could measure. He said, what I couldn't measure in an email was, hey, how are people doing with the fruit of the Spirit? Are they more patient and kind? 
and loving and sacrificial? And are they exercising self-control? You don't get an email. I don't get an email on Monday that says, hey, because of your message yesterday, uh, patience is up 13% in your congregation. But you know what, guys? We're obsessed with measuring everything, and it's killing us. And I'm not doing it. This church is not going to do that. We're going to take the long look. We're going to ruthlessly eliminate rush and hurry and professionalism. I don't care what it does because that's what God wants for this church, and that's what he wants for your life. Find a way to weave this Sabbath principle into your life. Simplify your life. Minimalize your life. Eliminate hurry and rush. I'm tired of getting with my kids and saying, come on, hurry, 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 hurry. That's the kind of parenting parent I've been. It's nobody's fault but mine. I just want to slow down and say, hey, kids, take your time. That's the kind of parent I want to be, and that's the kind of pastor I want to be, and that's the kind of culture I want grace life to be because that's better. That honors and glorifies Christ, and it's set in stark contrast to what the world's like out there. Does that make sense? Everybody got really quiet. That's a good thing, and that's a longer message than I intended it for be. But that's it. That's the end of our culture series. Uh, You can go back and download any of these messages, read the blog, or just listen to today's message, and that's the summary. Now listen, I'm going to ask our elders to to make their way down. I am taking a short sabbatical in the month of of October, just from preaching. I'm still going to be around. You'll still see me here some of the time, but I have not had a break from preaching in six years, and I need one. And look, I know people hear the word sabbatical, and they get spooked. Oh, what happened? Is there a scandal? No, thank God. There's not, and I don't ever want there to be. That's why I want to take a break, and I want to look ahead and say, God, what do you want me to preach on next? You want us to go through Romans or 1 John or do some studies in Genesis? So I'm really excited. Curtis from Christ Community Church is going to preach. My friend Anthony that I graduated seminary with is going to preach. Kyle's going to preach. And then I'll be back right before the election. When everybody's probably losing their mind, right? Um, But I'm going to ask our our elders to pray pray over me, that God grants me just a, um, a time of rest and gives me just fresh vision and helps me to to put into practice all these things that we're talking about and and that he will help you too. So they're going to pray over me and then we're going to do a song of reflection and then uh, we'll be dismissed with our announcements. And I just want to thank you guys for your patience. I love this church. I want to be here for the rest of my life. And that's the truth. had no plans of going anywhere else. Nobody else would take me. You're stuck. I'm like the poor. You have me with you always, right? Um, and I'm thankful that God brought me here. This is, this is, uh, been the best six years of my life and the hardest six years of my life. And I want there to be six more and six more and six more and see what God has for us. So, uh, will you guys pray over me? You can use the microphone. I'm going to turn this one off so we don't get feedback.
ways that Lord, we can't even imagine right now. We thank you, Lord, that uh, for his for his wife and his children, Lord, who are uh, for her as a helpmate to him. Lord, for the way that she um, inspires and helps and comes alongside and 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 serves um, you. Lord, we just thank you for this. We pray that over these next few weeks, while he is uh, away from us, Lord, that you would continue to bless our worship. And Lord, bless him in that. May it be vitalizing. May it be uh, blessing. And may you guard and direct him in all things. And Father, I just uh, also, I pray that at this time, he's, he's doing this to honor you, Lord, to get rest. Um, Father, you have um, designed into us a need for Sabbath, a need for rest. And um, I know that he's taken this time, Lord, just to realign himself with you, uh, to take a step back and, and look at his life and look at the vision that you've put on his heart. And uh, we pray, Father, that you will give him fresh revelation, fresh understanding, and uh, lead him continually, Lord, through this time. And even if you have a new word for him, Lord, I pray that you would make his heart receptive to anything new that you would have to say. And um, Lord, there's so many things going on in our world today, and we exalt you today. Jesus, As you, this is your church, just as Tommy said earlier today, we just want to rededicate, reconsecrate that, and make that known before all the listeners today that you are the Lord of this church. You are the one that bought us. You own us, and you own Tommy, Lord, and he is your servant, and he is a faithful and willing servant, Lord, and um, we know that his desire, Father, is to serve you and um, to honor you and to honor your word, and uh, I, I just... I believe right now, Lord, that you're going to do something great in his life and in his family's life and just give him a fresh, um, just a fresh revelation and just a refreshment, Lord, in you. There is no greater thing, um, as David said, than to be in the house of the Lord and just to be dwelling in, in your presence. There's no greater thing to that, Lord. And uh, we just dedicate this time to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and call upon the church as you listen to continue to pray for him in your, in your private time. Lift up Tommy, lift up his family um, so that he can come back refreshed. And if God is calling us to a new direction, that he would be strengthened to do that or to maintain what God has already called him to. We just, uh, we're looking forward to that and we're expecting a refreshment in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. This is the uh, song of reflection, and we have prayer team in the back. If you want to go and confess sin to somebody you've never confessed before, just pray with somebody. Your heart is broken, or you're confused, or you're distressed, or you're afraid. This will be your time to make your way to the back while the, the band plays this Selah song. And then uh, I think Megan or Diana is going to come and dismiss us and give us some announcements, guys.
Um, just a couple of things for you. I wanted to update you on our baby bottle um, outreach that we did for the Central Florida Pregnancy Center. Um, so thankful for everyone who collected change and gave um, a little over $700 was raised that we were able to give to the Central Florida Pregnancy Center. Um, and just as a reminder, they offer to the community um, ultrasounds and appointments and counseling um, and resources. And through their thrift shop, they give, you know, baby clothes and bottles and um, baby items and families uh, who who need uh, that thing, those things as they're welcoming uh, new children into their lives. So um, praise God for that. And thank you, um, you know, for taking bottles and, and giving in that way um, and going in that way. We gather, we grow, and we go. Um, and then second and lastly, this week is our fifth Wednesday prayer gathering. And um, I had mentioned last week we're, we're meeting in person again. Um, this time, and um, I know we've all missed that. Um, and there will be, if you would like to attend online, I believe we'll have a Zoom link for that too. If you're unable um, or still keeping a safe distance, there will be a Zoom link for that as well. And we'll have that on our Church Center app and on the website as well that you can access that day of. But it will be the gathering will be held at the Roth home, um, which is in Orange City. If you would like the uh, specific address or you need it to attend um, for Wednesday night at 7 p.m., you can email me at contact at gracelifeflorida.com and I will send you their address. Um, and then I almost forgot, community groups. There will be no community groups this week because we'll be as to not, you know, bombard everyone's schedules and um, having too many nights out. Um, that fifth Wednesday prayer gathering will be taking place um, for that. So, um, and then community groups will resume next week. Um, but if you want to stand with me, we'll say our charge together before we head out. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.